It's hard for me to fathom, but as recently as the late 1960s and early 1970s, there were a few people, more than a few, who didn't feel that women could do long-distance running. In fact, at the Olympics at that time, the longest race that women could participate in was 800 meters, basically half a mile. They weren't allowed to participate in the marathons. In fact, it wouldn't be till 1972 that women would be allowed. And it was just thought that women were too fragile. They didn't have what it takes to run the long distance. Now, that kind of thinking, after having incredible female athletes like Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias and Althea Gibson and Wilma Rudolph, many women who had shown incredible strength and courage and stamina. But in those days, long-distance running wasn't for women. So in 1966, it was the first time a woman completed the Boston Marathon. Now, she couldn't register for it. Bobby Gibbs ran the marathon. She started near the the beginning line with all the other runners, but she wasn't registered because she was a woman. But she ran the entire marathon with all of them and finished. Now she is recognized as the first woman to finish the Boston Marathon. The next year, she would run again unregistered. But in 67, there was also another runner who did register, the first woman to register, even though she wasn't supposed to. She used her initials. It was 19-year-old Catherine Switzer. She was a student at Syracuse University. And in those days, it was before the time of Title IX that would bring sweeping changes and benefits to women in sports. Syracuse, like most other universities in that day, didn't have a women's running program. And so she started running with the men's cross-country team and training with them. And and the coach, one of the coaches, noticed her talent. And so he kind of took her under his wing and started training her himself. And he had participated in several Boston marathons. And so on these long practice runs, he would tell her stories about all the different marathon experiences he had over and over. And finally, she said, enough talk. Help me to run the Boston Marathon. And he stopped and he said, you can't run the Boston Marathon. Any marathon is too much for a woman. Women are too fragile to run that far. And she reminded him that she was running 10 miles a day with him. And he said, look, I think marathons are too much for women, but if you can show me in practice that you can run 26 miles, I'll take you to Boston myself. And so just three weeks before the Boston Marathon, she ran 26 miles with her coach, Arnie Briggs, And she showed him that she could run the distance. Now, at the end of 26 miles, she was ecstatic. She was so full of of energy. And and she said, look, I think we need to run another five miles just to give myself confidence for the marathon distance. And Arnie reluctantly agreed. So after a total of 31 miles, she was still 
over the top excited, and she was jumping up and down, and she hugged her coach, Arnie, who proceeded to pass out. (laughs) He was fine. The next morning, he called Catherine, and he said, I want you to register for the Boston Marathon. Now, her boyfriend at the time was a hammer thrower on the Syracuse track team, a big guy, and and he heard that she had signed up for the marathon, and so he signed up too. And he, and he told her, even though he wasn't running or training, he said, if a girl can run the marathon, so can I. And so on the day of the race, she had a team of people running with her, her boyfriend, her coach, Arnie, and, and one of the other men from the Syracuse cross-country team. Now, in all the crowd of runners, the officials hadn't noticed that they had a woman in the race, but some of the other runners did, and some of these men came up to her, and and she would say later, they were so encouraging and supportive, and, and they congratulated her for being there, and they wished her well. Now, that particular day was very cold and icy, and she was dressed in this heavy sweatsuit. And so she pinned her bib number to the front and the number on the back of her sweatshirt. As the race progressed, she just was basking kind of in the glory of being part of such a historic race like the Boston Marathon. But just after the fourth mile, a flatbed truck passed all the runners. And she could see that in the back of the truck were reporters and photographers and a few officials. Well, one of the race officials got down off the truck and stood in the middle of the road in front of her, and he was trying to grab her hand to yank her out of the race, but all he managed to do was pull the glove off of one of her hands, and she kept on running. Not too long after that, though, she heard the sound of footsteps behind her, of 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 shoes uh, running up to her and It's not too unusual in a race, but she could tell that it wasn't a pair of running shoes. She could tell that they were leather shoes, and she turned around, and she saw this furious man. His name was Jock Semple, and he was the co-director of the marathon. He was nicknamed Mr. Boston Marathon. He was in charge of keeping the rules of the race, and he was running up to her, and he screamed out, "'Give me those numbers!' And he started to reach out, and he was trying to rip off the number from her back. But her boyfriend, being a hammer thrower, was able to kind of gently tackle him out of the way. And she was able to keep running. Well, she was able to finish the race, and and her boyfriend and her entire team, and they celebrated. She was just thrilled to have, have achieved her dream, the Boston Marathon. But the next morning she woke up and she opened up the paper and there on the front page was a photograph of her and one of the race officials, Jock Semple, trying to rip the bib number off of her. And in a moment, her life changed. In a moment, that whole situation changed. She became a game changer. It would change the field of women's sports. It would It would show that things could be done differently, that women could handle the longer distances. It still wouldn't be until 1984 that the Olympics opened up the marathon to women. But she was a part of paving the way for all athletes to think of things differently. This morning, we're continuing on with our sermon series, Game Changers. 
we're looking at different athletes who, by changing their field of sports, have brought about change in the world. Throughout the Bible are numerous examples of men and women who God has used and called to make a change in the world, to make a difference, to make the world a better place. As followers of Christ, we are called to make an impact on the world around us. We're called to make things better for people. We are called to be game changers. In this morning's scripture, we find the story of Esther. Now, this story of Esther comes from a time of the history of Israel that's after the exile where they are taken into captivity into Babylon. And now the Persian Empire has come into power and dominates everything. And so there are Jews living in the land of Persia. Many Jews had returned home to Israel, but some had stayed there. And so this is the story of Esther and her people in the land of Persia. The book of Esther opens up with the story of the king of Persia. He was married to his wife Vashti. She was the queen. And in those days, I suppose kings didn't have a whole lot to do other than go to war or have banquets and parties. And so it opens up with him hosting a huge banquet for all the political and military leaders around the land. And it says that they were drinking for seven days. And then it describes the king saying that his heart was lightened and warm. And I think that's just a nice way to say that he had been drinking for seven days. He summoned Vashti to come and put on her crown and stand before his banquet. And basically just wanted to show off how beautiful she was. That she didn't have any desire to stand before a whole banquet hall full of men who had been drinking for seven days in a row, and so she refused. And the king was furious. And so his advisors come to talk to him, and I think it's one of the funniest passages of Scripture. His advisors come to him and say, look, if you let this happen, all the wives of the kingdom are going to start disobeying their husbands. Now, I think the parentheses is our wives are going to start disobeying us. And so they said that you need to set aside Vashti. You need to find a more suitable queen, someone who's more submissive and deserves the title of queen better than she does. And so they conduct a search throughout the land of all the most beautiful maidens, and they become part of the king's new harem. And out of all of these women... The king of Persia sees Esther, and he falls in love with her, and he bestows upon her the title of queen, and she receives the crown. Well, she had been raised by her uncle Mordecai. They were Jewish, and her parents had died when she was young, and her uncle had raised her up. Now, Mordecai was somebody who had discovered a plot to assassinate the king, And he revealed that plot to the king, saving his life. And so the king uh, made him an official of the court. Now, this infuriated the king's right-hand man, Haman. And so Haman sought out to destroy Mordecai, but not only get rid of him, he wanted to get rid of all the Jewish people in the Persian land. 
And so he came up with this edict that he tricked or bribed the king into signing that would eliminate all the Jews. Mordecai sent word to Esther telling her that you need to go before your husband and beg him for the life of your people. And she sent word back and she said, the king has made a law that no one can go before him unless they are summoned. And I haven't been invited to see him. I haven't seen him in 30 days. Mordecai would write back and say, who knows, but for such a time as this, that you are in the palace, you can save your people. All of us can change the world around us. I think there are two important things that we should discuss this morning First is to remember to face risks so that we can focus on opportunities. In the world today, we are really against anything that has a hint of risk. Now, it's good to to make things as safe as possible, as clean as possible, but when we try to eliminate every risk from life, it's unnatural. When a toddler is first learning to walk, there's a risk of falling down. When any of us are trying to learn how to ride a bicycle, there's a risk of crashing. If anyone is embarking on some new hobby or some new uh, sport, there's a risk of failure. And yet, if we never try anything new, we don't have new experiences, new, new dreams. We've been so focused on risk that we're missing opportunities. I can't help but be reminded of the great quote that says, one cannot discover new oceans if they are unwilling to lose sight of the shore. We have to face the risks so that we can focus on opportunities. Now, these risks aren't always things that are life-threatening. Sometimes it's just change in general. We become comfortable. We like our routine. But who knows what's waiting out there? It was 11 years ago that back-to-back I received two calls from different senior pastors that asked me to consider becoming an associate pastor on their staff. And those calls gave my husband and I, Chris, we had an opportunity to talk about that option. We had a chance to really pray about if that was an opportunity that we felt God was calling us to pursue or accept And after a lot of discussion and prayer, we really, we didn't think so. We felt that that was not in my ministry path, and so we made a decision that we would say no. It was a few months later that Dr. Long called, and he asked me to meet him here at St. Luke's to consider the possibility of being an associate pastor on the staff here. Now, as I drove to the city I knew in my mind, of course, the answer was no. We had decided that. We had listened to God, and and we knew the plan. And and so I drove here uh, knowing the answer, but feeling pretty excited to get a chance to visit with Dr. Long. He was well-known throughout the conference, and I'd get to talk with him about ministry and leadership. But as he started to take me around St. Luke's, the, the church building, I started to see all the wonderful ministries that happen here. And it was almost like I felt God calling me that I could be a part of these kind of ministries. 
And to be honest with you, that was really unsettling. I thought I knew what the plan was. I got in the car to drive home, and I, I was really upset. I had decided, I had made a decision with my husband on the course of our future, and here it seemed like I was going against it. I thought about my husband's job. He was doing well uh, with his job in DHS in the place where we lived, and, and there was no guarantee of a job here in the city. And living in the city and, and working for DHS, those kind of jobs went quickly, and so we didn't know what would happen. I thought about our children, Hannah and Brooks. Brooks was young, and I knew that he could be fine with the change, but Hannah was in sixth grade, and I knew definitely she would not be excited about a move. I kind of got the courage, and I called Chris, and I said, I think God is calling us to St. Luke's. And, and he said, okay, give me a few minutes, and I'll call you back. Now, I thought he was kind of calming down, you know, because I was suggesting something different from our plan, but he called back in a few minutes, and he said, I just called the state office, and they have a position for me. Now, it had felt like such a big risk for us to say yes to come here. I mean, it was such a, a change from what we thought the plan was. But taking that seemingly small risk led to the greatest opportunity for our family. I can't imagine not having the joy of St. Luke's in my life or that of my family's. We get to be part of a family of faith that's always looking for ways to make a difference. This is an incredible part of who we are as a family. It was the greatest change of our lives. For Mordecai, he would tell Esther, he knew that her life was in danger, but the potential, the opportunity was so great. He didn't want her to miss it for fear of the risk. Her risk was life-threatening. And especially for Queen Esther, she really was under the microscope. His first wife, you remember, had disobeyed him, embarrassed him, infuriated him. What would happen if his second wife disobeyed him? And yet, she had to focus on what was best for others, on the opportunities. One of the things that is so special about today is that we are consecrating a new site for the work of the Lord. Dr. Long is up in Edmond preaching today, and the bishop is up there as well. This is one of the four times, four occasions, that we have consecrated a new place for God's kingdom. Now, this started several years ago when we heard from a few families in our church that lived outside of Oklahoma City, they would come to us and they almost had the same story. They loved their church home at St. Luke's, but the drive downtown just was so far, and it was hard with their families and their children. They had even looked at different churches around them, but none of them seemed to suit them, and so kind of the, the answer for them was to come to St. Luke's when they could. And so we started a discussion of what a satellite church might look like. Dr. Long went up to Kansas City to visit Church of the Resurrection, the largest United Methodist church, and they have a very successful multi-site campus. He went to the Sunday morning worship service at church, uh, Res West, one of their satellites. Now, he was skeptical going in because he knew that they had video preaching, 
The sermon was delivered by a video, although the worship band and the campus pastor was all there, and he just didn't think that that would come off very well. But after the service, he said, I felt like I had been to church. The sermon was excellent. The music was great. The campus pastor was personal. He said, if I lived here, I could go there every single week. And so I went to Kansas City to visit and kind of uh, assess, and it was over break, so I took my son Brooks, and we visited all the different satellites, Res West, Res Downtown, Res Blue Springs. We visited several services, and we came away with the same thought. I had been initially skeptical about uh, video preaching, but afterwards, the message was wonderful, and the experience was outstanding. And so it was in the fall of 2013 that we began serious discussions with the leadership of St. Luke's and the leadership of our conference. And in January of 2014, our administrative board approved the beginning of St. Luke's Edmond at Sequoia Middle School. And that would take place in March of 2014. And so just two and a half Years later, here's where we are, consecrating a brand new site for God. Now, when we started, of course, we didn't know how it would go. We hadn't done this before. There was a risk of failure. We didn't know how it could be successful, but we knew that the prayers and the hard work of the family of faith, we knew that we had to try for the opportunity to reach more people for Christ. And right off the bat, we started seeing signs of making a difference. We started hearing stories from people who said they were coming to church for the first time. We heard a story from a family of five. Now, they had been watching St. Luke's on television for years and years, but they lived out past Jones, and they just felt like the drive downtown was just too much. But when they heard about St. Luke's Edmund opening in the school, they were there on that first Sunday. And because they were so familiar with St. Luke's, at the end of the service, when the invitation was given for anyone who wanted to join the church, one of the children leaned forward and looked at their parents and said, aren't we going forward to join? And so on that very first Sunday in the school, that family of five came forward and they all joined. Last Sunday, the very last Sunday they were in the school, that family of five came forward again at the end of the service, this time to stand with a young couple who was joining, who they had invited to become part of St. Luke's. If we're willing to to face the risks, but focus on the opportunities, incredible things can happen. And second, it's important that we remember that we look for these opportunities, not just for ourselves, but for others. We have to focus on others. Catherine Switzer registered for the Boston Marathon for herself. She ran the race for herself. She loved running. But the next morning when she saw that photograph on the front page of of Jock Simple trying to rip off the number off her back, It would go on to be one of 100 photographs that changed the world. She understood in that moment, she had a profound impact on the world. And she could use this opportunity to make a difference for others. 
She started speaking out for the rights of women, and she would later organize a foundation to support women athletes. Now, the funny thing is, she and Jock Simple, the man who was trying to take the number from her, they would become close friends over the years. They would speak at different events together, and it turns out that Jock Simple wasn't against women running in marathons. He had no problem with that. He did, however, have a problem with anyone breaking the rules, and a woman in the marathon was, a, was definitely against the rules. He would become a women's rights af, uh, advocate and speak out in, in favor of women participating in all sorts of sports. Well, at the end of his life, he was in a hospital, and Catherine had the opportunity to go and visit him one last time. And, and when she walked in his room, he had a, a thick Scottish brogue, and he said, you know, I made you famous, lass. And she laughed, and she said, yes, and I made you famous as well. <laughs> they changed each other's lives, and they changed the world. For Esther... She understood the incredible risk to her own life, but she knew that the opportunity to help others was far greater. And because of her selfless courage, she was able to save her people. One of the things I I admire so much about our family of faith is that we are constantly seeking out ways to help others from risking a venture out into the unknown by starting a church in Russia, to partnering with an elementary school at Rancho Village, to starting a satellite campus up in Edmond, we, are, we look for opportunities. We want to reach out. We are constantly seeking ways to impact the world around us. Some of you might remember a few years back when the Bow sisters came to speak to our church. Hadassah and Slila Bow are the daughters of Joseph and Rebecca Bow, who survived the Holocaust. Now, their parents, Joseph and Rebecca, met in a concentration camp. And there, in that horrible setting, they actually fell in love. They found joy in their relationship. They decided to get married in the camp, which was extremely forbidden. If they had been discovered, they would have been executed. But they had a marriage ceremony in private in one of the barracks. They didn't have a rabbi, and so Rebecca's mother performed the ceremony. If any of you have seen the movie Schindler's List, the scene in the movie that highlights a wedding taking place is based on Joseph and Rebecca Bow. Well, unfortunately, not too long after the wedding, they were separated. Uh, Joseph was sent off to another concentration camp, but his life was spared because of his wife. She had an opportunity to put her name on a list of people who were going to work for Oscar Schindler. And instead of writing her name, she wrote in Joseph Bow, her husband. And he was sent to work for Oscar Schindler until the end of the war. She was sent to Auschwitz. Three different times she was scheduled to go into the gas chambers, and three times she was able to talk her way out of it. Miraculously, both of them survived the war. They were able to find one another, and uh, together they moved to Israel, and they raised their two daughters and had a wonderful marriage that lasted a long, long time. 
He set up an art studio in Israel and was known as the Israeli Walt Disney. But their happy ever after actually started many, many years before with the birth of of Joseph Bau in Krakow, Poland. When he was born, a young child, it was obvious he had a gift for art. And as a young man, he enrolled in art school. Now, while there, one particular semester, the professor got up and announced to the class that he was offering a special course. It wasn't mandatory. It was optional for all the students. But when the course started, Joseph noticed that he was the only student who showed up. And so the the professor taught him, just he was the only one, taught him German Gothic lettering. Now, not too long after that, the The Germans invaded Poland, and Joseph and the rest of the Jewish people were sent to live in a ghetto. Now, the official font of the Nazi party was German Gothic. And while Joseph Bau was in the ghetto, he was trying to establish some sense of normalcy in that terrible place. And so he painted a sign, Joseph Bau, graphic artist, and he used... German Gothic lettering. He posted that sign outside of his room that he shared with several other people. And when the Nazis saw it, they knew that they needed his talent and skill. And so he started producing official documents for the Nazi party. And he was kept safe there in the ghetto and later on in the concentration camp. He produced lots of documents and maps and signs for them. But it also gave him the skill to produce and forge falsified documents and identity papers so that others could escape the camp. And so he worked on that and he produced enough paperwork that over 400 people were able to escape the camps at great risk to his life. Years after the war, he was invited to be a part of a a panel discussion, and the reporter asked him, you know, all these documentation, you know, these paperwork and everything that you produced for others so that they could escape, why didn't you produce the paperwork for yourself? Why didn't you escape? And one of his daughters was there, and she could tell that the question puzzled him. He he had never considered it. And and finally he answered, he said, if I had escaped, who would have helped all these people? For Joseph Bow, he never thought that God had put him in the concentration camp, but he understood that for such a time as this, God could use him to help others. He was able to save over 400 lives He was able to make a profound difference because he was a game changer. Maybe this is your moment, your time in history to have an impact on the world around you. If you will face the risk so that you can see opportunities to help others, you can change the world. You can be a game changer. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.